Well, good morning. Uh, welcome you here on a, on a cold, rainy morning, but it is the Lord's Day, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We want to welcome those who are joining with us uh, on the, the live stream as well. It's good that all can gather in one way or the other for the worship of our God. And uh, just a couple of um, announcements. First, for those of you who are here, you'll see that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and to everyone get your, your little cup if anyone's needing a cup. You raise your hand, and Mark's right there in the background, and he'll bring you a cup if you need it. So we're just raise your hand, and Mark will bring it to you. And uh, then, uh, just to let you know, now we will be having Holy Week uh, services. We've determined that, and, and I believe that's the, I think, if I recall, it's April the 4th is uh, Easter Sunday. We'll have, a, um, we'll have at least these two services on Easter maybe a third one uh, as well. We'll get information to you about that. We'll have the Good Friday service at noontime. And in, and in place of the uh, typical Monday, Thursday service, we will have a, um, a Lenten uh, cantata. And so we'll look forward uh, to that. Uh, so let's prepare now uh, our hearts for worship. Our opening hymn is a psalm, and this is Psalm 100. Let me open by, for our call to worship, reading from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come, 
into his presence with singing. And we gladly come before you, our God, with singing. For we have of all people the reason to to sing. We have uh, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We have received the gospel of grace. We have known truly your goodness. And we delight in worshiping you for your, your goodness and your faithfulness. And we pray that you would receive this worship we offer to you in the name of Christ. We pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit so that what we do will be pleasing unto our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's stand and sing together, all people that on earth do dwell. Confession of faith, we're using the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. 
What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we give you praise. You who dwell in heaven and yet you dwell here with us. That your spirit is present everywhere. And though you are in heaven itself right now in that uh, holy throne room, and there about you are the, are the angels and the saints who have gone before us, yet also you are receiving us as part of that worship. And we take delight in worshiping you and in giving you praise Truly you are a God who is good, who is worthy of all praise. You have demonstrated so clearly to us your faithfulness through your son, Jesus Christ. How rich we truly are, how blessed we are in Jesus Christ. We pray that as we worship you, we pray that as we live our lives each day, that we will be those who honor your name, for we bear your name. We are your children, and may we honor our Father. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for our Lord Jesus to return. We thank you that he brought with him the kingdom when he first came, that it is now here upon this earth, that we have that, that joy and that privilege to serve in that kingdom here on this earth. And we pray that we will be found faithful in the day that he should return, or that we shall be called into heaven itself. We pray that we will be those who do your will here on earth, and in that we will trust that your will is being done on this earth. Whatever we may see about us, whatever may be fearful or frightening or baffling, to understand that we belong to your kingdom, that we are held in your hands, that we can never perish, no harm can come upon us, we are safe in you. We pray that you would give to us today, give to us even now our daily bread of your word, the daily bread that we need that comes from the fellowship of believers, that come from the, the reading of your word, the proclamation, receiving of it, uh, for the, uh, the, the hymns that we, we sing, all these things speak to us and, and feed us spiritually. We pray for you to feed us physically, that you'd feed us with all that we need to be true and faithful servants of your kingdom. Forgive us of our debts, our failures at times to, uh, to, to live for you, the, the times in which we have transgressed your laws, but particularly on, on a day which we think about love, forgive us for our failure to love uh, our God with all our heart and mind and strength our failure to love our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us that we would hold others indebted to us 
because they have not loved us as we think that they ought to. We pray our Father, create in such a spirit in us that we love not only our neighbors, that we love those who would count themselves as our very enemies and thereby show the great love of God our Father. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know how weak we are. Deliver us from the evil one. And we make this prayer because we acknowledge that to you belongs the kingdom in which we live. To you belongs all of the power by which we live. To you belongs all the glory for which we are to live. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now I invite you to turn... For the first time, I'm not telling you to turn to Hebrews, but uh, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, and you'll find that in the insert, not only do you have the text, you have an outline, and you know how rare that is to get an outline from me, so you treasure that, because uh, I don't know if you'll get another one from me. Well, you know the hymn, I'm sure, Count Your Blessings, Name them one by one. Well, that's what our first psalm is doing. Uh, It is presenting the blessings of the blessed life. Now, as you'll note there in in the outline, the theme is the blessed life. And our psalmist is going to present what it looks like for the man or the woman who has that kind of life. Now, first of all, he's going to identify by their behavior who is blessed in verses 1 and 2. Then he'll show what the results of it or what that blessed life entails in verse 3. He'll present a contrast with the wicked life, what their consequences are in verses 4 and 5. Then he'll conclude it by pointing it all to the Lord who is the one who bestows blessing and for that matter bestows judgment. So let's look first of all at the behavior of the blessed person. The blessed person in verse 1 and verses 2 described, first of all, negatively and then positively. Let's look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we're looking, first of all, what the blessed person or that blessed life, what he does not do. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat with the scoffers. And what he's talking about here is, though he's giving an imagery of kind of hanging out with certain people, that's not the real point that he's bringing out here. It's not so matter about who they hang out with as it is who they allow to influence them and, and cause them to think of what life is like. Who's going to uh, show them what their worldview is going to be or what their identity is going to be? And you can see this in the contrast that he makes now in verse 2 with the positive behavior. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And that Hebrew word for law is Torah. You've heard that term. That's the five books of Moses. Now, often it can also be referring to all of the Old Testament, the scriptures as well. And so whether he's thinking of just those five books 
or maybe by this time there are other books that have been included as scriptures. The point is, is his delight is in the word of God. His, his delight is in scriptures. Now, one thing that he's already has introduced to us is what is the, the primary feature of Hebrew poetry. And that is what is called parallelism. What that means is he'll say one line and then the next line will be very similar to it. He's already done that in verse 3, actually, with three lines. Three lines saying basically the same thing in different words. Here in verse 2, there are two lines that are sharing the same thought. But in parallelism, it's not just saying the same thing over again. Usually that second line is going to kind of give you a little bit more nuance, developing whatever that previous line had been. And so, uh, just looking at verse 1, you saw how he did that. He speaks of walking with the wicked, standing uh, with the sinners, sitting uh, with the scoffers. And you might want to do an, an exercise for this week. You might want to read over that passage again and meditate on that and how each line develops a different little bit system of thought for you. But this morning, we're going to focus on uh, this verse, verse 2. And what strikes me here is the comparison that he makes between uh, delight and between meditates day and night. And you can see how they go hand in hand. Today is Valentine's Day, so you kind of have an Im imagery with that. You have a, a young man who's, who's fallen in love, and he now delights in his loved one. Now, what will he just do naturally? He will meditate on her. He's going to think about her, become like a student of her. He's going to think about the way she, she looks, the way she acts, the way she talks, what just makes her so wonderful. Now, as most of you ladies know, that's not typical, that's not natural for the typical man, okay? It's the, but it's that delight that causes him, at least for a time being, to meditate on her. Later, after he's won her, particularly after he's married her, he's going to go back to meditating on his sports team or his hobby on golf or hunting or whatever because he delights in those things. And what you delight in, you just naturally give your attention to. So the blessed person likes God's word. And it leads him then to, to meditate on it. And it's as simple as that. Reading, meditating on God's word, that's a blessing to him. And what he reads, it resonates with him in contrast to being in the company of sinners, of the, the wicked. Now verse 3 depicts what that blessing entails. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So the blessed person's life is fruitful. It's healthy. It's a prosperous life. The life is not that of a, of a scraggly tree that's in a, a dry wilderness and is just surviving. No, there. They are prosperous from the word of God, 
like a tree that is just soaking up the water from the stream that it is nearby that's providing it its nourishment. And the main point for us to grasp here is that the blessed life is productive. The tree produces fruit. It produces green leaves. And in like manner, the blessed person produces the fruit of good character and of good works. He is successful in obtaining the fruit of uh, of his labor. Now the wicked, well, we're going to see the consequences of their life choices in verses 4 and 5. Again, verse 4 presents what they become. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, nothing can be more different from a healthy, fruitful tree than chaff. It has no life in it. For that matter, it has no substance. There's no permanence to it. Definitely does not have roots. The farmer tosses the chaff up into the the air along with the grain, and the, the wind just blows away the chaff and allows the grain to come back down. That is what the life of the wicked has become of no value, like chaff. But that imagery of chaff also conveys something more than just the quality of life. It also conveys what will happen to that life. Chaff, typically, by the farmer who has thrown it up into air, is then gathered, and it is then burned. John the Baptist used this imagery uh, in his, actually speaking of what, what he wasn't waiting for the Messiah to do. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is where verse 5 takes us. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the judgment of the wicked often takes place in their lifetime. They end up in jail, maybe they're fined, maybe they lose their wealth, and or other bad things happen to them in this lifetime. But what our psalmist has in mind here, he's got in mind the day of judgment. And that ultimate event that is awaiting all, when all will be tossed up into the air by the winnowing fork and what will happen is that the wicked will not stand. They're going to be blown away while the wheat grain of the righteous will fall back to the floor. Like chaff, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not remain with the congregation, that is the company of the righteous. There's going to be that separation. And the wicked will be seen for what they are, and they will be reserved for the fire of judgment. We then conclude with verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, we have these two ways, that of the righteous, of the wicked, And what's being put into perspective is how the Lord relates to each. Of the righteous, the Lord knows their way. Now by that, he means more than that the Lord is simply aware of the righteous. 
In that sense, the Lord knows both the righteous and the wicked. He, he sees both. But what he means here by knowing is that he, he knows them in the same way that loved ones know one another. He cares for the righteous. The wicked, however, will perish. And they will perish, not like someone who's, well, they've gotten lost in the wilderness and now they will die, but rather from the judgment that will come from the Lord, they will perish. Think of it this way. The the psalmist is not a father giving his son some practical advice on how to be successful in life. You know, you you be fruitful, be productive, and you will be successful. No, he's a preacher, and he is presenting the prospect of God's judgment. And he is saying, look, either the Lord will judge one to be righteous and thus bestow blessing, or he will judge one to be wicked and he will execute condemnation. So in summary, the blessed life is blessed because of the blessing bestowed by the Lord. The wicked life is ultimately cursed because of the ultimate judgment that will come by the hand of the Lord. So let's take time looking back over this and consider some lessons uh, from this psalm. Now the first lesson I would have is think about lies in those first two verses. Again, it picks those two ways of the wicked and of the righteous. Now if you recall what I had said that it was not being presented as simply a matter of, look, who we hang out with is going to control their worldview and their identity or that it has to do more with what kind of mindset that you're going to have. Having said that, it really does make a difference who you're going to hang out with. That really is going to influence the way that we think. And we understand this principle. Those with whom we walk most of the time, those with whom we stand in their way most of the time, those with whom we sit down with and hang out with most of the time will be those who have the most influence with the way that we think, even with what we delight in. Now, our psalmist, he, of course, is thinking literally about this, about personal relationships. He knows nothing. He knows nothing really even about books or magazines. He doesn't, of course doesn't have TV, doesn't have movies, does not have the internet. He could not imagine a culture in which our main influencers, the people we spend most of our time with, are actually strangers or long-distant friends on social media or in which celebrities or radio and TV personalities are the main influences with whom we hang out during the day. So whether whether the influences, whether they're friends that we know personally, whether they're those somewhere out there on TV, internet, or whatever, the point remains this, that those with whom we spend the most time, those are the ones who are going to have the most influence on us. Now what I'd like to do here is know who I think is the most dangerous here. Now, our psalmist has given us the wicked, he's given us the sinners, and the scoffers. Well, I think the scoffers, for us, are the most dangerous. 
I don't think it's accidental that he saves them for last and that he associates sitting with them. Scoffers don't do. They sit and they scoff at the doers. Um, I can't help, when I think about it, I can't think of the two scoffing critics who are ridiculing poor uh, Kermit and his fellow Muppets as they're trying to put on a show. They're not critics who are trying to give insight into what works and doesn't work. They delight. This is what they have fun doing, is ridicule. And as a result, they become arrogant. They pride themselves in seeing the ridiculous in everything and in every other person. Doesn't matter who they are. And what makes them so dangerous is that to sit with them is so easy to become like them. And it, they, they are the easiest to become like. I mean, we're not typically, the Christian's not typically going to just walk with the wicked because it's so blatant. You know, this is wicked, this is wrong to do, and it's distasteful. Might more easily stand in the way of sinners, but even then, typically, we're going to be more alert to what sin is. It's the scoffers. They are the more insidious group. They're there, they're, they're, they're happy to ridicule the wicked and the sinners. And they're funny while they do it. And we think they're funny. And even then, they're going to turn their ridicule toward Christian believers. They're, still going, to, they're going to do it in a funny way. That's what good satire does. And while we join in that laughter... We don't notice it. We suddenly, we subtly change. And gradually become more and more scoffers than doers. And even worse, we suddenly move from being those who love our neighbors to actually despising them as we ridicule them. You know, sarcasm, and that's the primary tool of the scoffers, It's a powerful tool in turning loving hearts into hard hearts against our neighbors and the world. And the more that it takes root in us, and again, it takes root in us in a subtle way, the more it hardens us against our neighbors, even against our brothers and sisters, and especially against the world, which we are called upon to to witness to with the love of Christ. And so I think we need to do that. We need to guard ourselves from giving way to sarcasm. We need to guard ourselves against caustic humor. We need to guard ourselves against humor that belittles others. We need to be careful with facetious humor, which is my favorite kind of humor. Got to be careful. If you find yourself having to say fairly often, Hey, I was just kidding. Something has happened in your heart. You've you've gone too far. And God knows the heart. He knows that little fun, that little kidding that you were doing probably reveals something not pleasant that you're probably even hiding from yourself. And so the the blessed life is is something in which... uh, is about knowing and following the right way. 
The second thing about the blessed life is that it is a fruitful life. The blessing of the, of the blessed person is that they bear fruit. Now, our present-day culture teaches us this. It teaches that the blessed life is doing whatever it is that excites us. Okay. There's nothing more important than following our passion. So my wife and I were watching a movie the, uh, the other night, and you got a couple who has grown apart. I think they might have even divorced. I can't remember. But they're brought together because... You know, through the movie, they end up doing something really dangerous, and that's exciting. And they end up finally going to do at the end of the movie to get back together, and they're going to sail around the world, which they'd always wanted to do. Now, sailing around the world, that would be exciting. We just want to be able to drive around and, and see the country. We think that's going to be exciting. But really, what is the blessed life? You older folks remember this song. Is that all there is, my friend? Is keeping ourselves excited for the few years that we have in, in life, however long God gives us, is that really what life is about? Is that really the blessed life? Is the blessed life getting to do what I really want to do, or is it being able to have a fruitful life that makes a difference? Is the, I mean, think about this, you know, many of you are in retirement. Is the struggle in retirement that people will often feel, is it because, well, they, they can't keep themselves busy, or is it that they don't feel useful? See? It's being useful. It's being fruitful. That's what makes a difference. Now, fortunately for us, fruitfulness means all kinds of, of fruit in all kinds of circumstance. There's no one fruit, there's no certain display of fruit that determines a blessed life. Doesn't have to be tied to a job, doesn't have to be measured by income, it doesn't have to be connected with how healthy that we are and what we physically can do and no longer do. It's not tied to how public it is, whether people can see it or not. The blessed fruitful life simply means this. It's one that is in which a person is living in service to God. They're, they're serving the kingdom of God in whatever capacity is given. You know, for that matter, the fruitful life is seen more in a, a person's character than in one's talents. You think about this. What, is, what are the fruit of the Spirit? They're all inner traits, not outward works. But in those inner traits, the blessing will come forth to that person, and then through that person to others, to all who are touched by that blessed person. So is it, is it a life marked out by fruitfulness? And furthermore, the blessed life is a life that we are to have now. Do you experience a blessed life now? You know, the psalm here is not contemplating what the blessed life will be in eternity, or when Jesus returns again. He's thinking about life right now. You know, there are Christians, and I'm sure you know some of them, who act as though this present life is nothing more than a cross-bearing life. 
You talk to them about their day. I'm bearing my cross. You know, I'm bearing my cross. And they, they think, I've got to wait till, wait till Jesus comes back. They actually feel, and I've heard people say this, they actually feel resentful of that thief on the cross. You know, he, he prays right then and there, and, and now he gets to go into paradise, and they think that's unfair. I mean, what a distorted perspective to think that the thief got the better deal. That it is better to have been looking back over a life of crime and immorality than to have lived a life following, a fruitful life following the Lord. The point of the matter is that to live a good life, that is the good life. For to live a good life, well, I mean, it brings many blessings. It brings the blessing of a good name. It brings the blessing of being someone who is trusted, who is respected, who is loved by loved ones. It brings the blessing of being fruitful. You know, as I was thinking about this psalm, and particularly in that line of, of a prosperous life, it made me think, is this psalm teaching the prosperity gospel? I mean, I just, what, a week or two, a week ago, warned you about the prosperity gospel, and it tells you the blessed life is a, is a prosperous life? Well, in a sense, it is. As the book of Proverbs will attest, a, this kind of life in which you are, you're working hard, you're bearing fruit, this oftentimes will reap material rewards. That's what diligent, trustworthy labor does. It oftentimes will bring in that good income, and especially when that income is not wasted on licentious living. But you think about what, what is the real value that people will often say of the Psalms? Well, it expresses what I'm going through. When a person says that, it mainly is saying, when I am feeling down, when I am suffering, when I am going through trials, boy, the Psalms speak for me. Scholars, commentators call these Psalms the Psalms of lament. So there can be the blessing of material prosperity, but more to the point of our Psalm, and really through all of these Psalms, is that the real blessing is that of a godly life. And to bear fruit, no, it does not require money, does not require a lot of resources. All it requires is the inner work of the Holy Spirit. And you think of this, to delight in the word of God. What do you need? You don't need money. You don't need good health. You don't need anything else. What do you need to delight in the gospel? Does it require material prosperity to say, God has greatly blessed me. The happiest woman I've ever known. I just, I, I just will never forget this image, which had to have been over 30 years ago. Seeing a woman in a nursing, lying in a nursing home bed, she is crippled up in her arms and her legs, and she is filled with the blessing of knowing her Savior. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. That's what the blessed person knows. 
The blessed person is the one who has Jesus. And as a result, he or she feels prosperous indeed. Now look, if you do not know this kind of blessing, it might be time to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? Here's the test. If you think following Jesus is a work to be done to win God's favor, then no. You probably don't know Jesus. Because Jesus is a gift. He's a blessed gift to be received, to be blessed by. He's not a burden to carry. And all you have to do, as you do with any gift, you just receive this blessed gift. And if you do, you will become a blessed man, a blessed woman, indeed. We give you praise and thanks, our God, for the blessed gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. To have him is to be blessed indeed. It is to be prosperous, to be rich beyond all comparison. We thank you for the blessing that you have given to us in him. And in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together the uh, two verses of Before the Throne of God Above. be seated. First Corinthians 11, we learn of the institution of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This supper is here to remind us of the blessed life that we have been given in Jesus Christ. He has given himself to us, his body, his blood. This is a reminder to us to what he has already given to us once and for all that is all sufficient for us. It's a reminder to us that we are always welcome to his table. No matter how many times we have fallen, no matter how many times that we have perhaps walked in the way of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or even sat in the seat of the scoffers, we belong to him and he forgives us. He always offers that forgiveness. Only folks for whom this table is not would be for those who say, I'm, I'm remaining in that seat of the scoffers. I like being in that way of the, the sinners. Well, that's the case. This is not for you. You only bring judgment when you do that. But if you're struggling, yes, I, I keep struggling being with these wicked and sinners, and it, it's influenced me in my mind, and I keep stumbling, and I'm struggling. Come. Come and be strengthened in your faith. Be lifted up again so that you will have strength to withstand sin. It also is not for those who, who call upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior yet. They do not know him. But know that it is always our prayer, our hope. Anyone who does not know Jesus Christ will come into his kingdom and know that blessed life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing we have in our Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate even now here at this table. Pray your blessing upon these elements that they in truth may be a blessing unto us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And you may want to be getting your cup ready and opening up that bottom top there for the, uh, the bread. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take heed, this is my body given for you. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all ye of it. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh, and in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again in that same body. And we look at his resurrection and have the hope of our own resurrection to come. We give you praise that he has ascended on high in that body 
that he is there in that throne room with you where he serves as our high priest ever interceding for us. We give you praise that someday he shall return again in all of his glory to consummate his kingdom. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together the last verse before the throne of God above. now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.